Sorry, I do not want to hear myself. <laughs> I, I know there was probably a few people whispering, we don't want to hear you either. Uh, <laughs> All right, I can be in the middle of the stage again. Kind of exciting. Let's uh, pray in preparation for the message this morning. And uh, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Help us to help me to explain the the text. Help me explain the gospel. Help me to uh, do so in a way that that is uh, that is um, reflecting your heart and your will and your thoughts. I pray for your grace on me this morning in those areas, and I pray that your spirit would be with us today, that as folks um, who are here, hear the word preached, hear the, the message that I'm bringing this morning, that they would, uh, they would know you more through it, that they would hear the gospel, that they would uh, know Christ and um, grow in their faith as a result of hearing your word preached. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, my uh, slides are not picking up here, so I'm going to do my best off the cuff until I figure this out. Um, we uh, This morning, uh, I was trying to figure out how to talk about this topic. Uh, it's been one that's kind of sat uh, in the back of my head all week, and, and finding the right illustration and the right explanation has been uh, challenging, uh, to say the least. And um, actually, I, I started thinking about a book I read uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the, uh, and I cannot remember the title. I know I always get the Destiny of the Republic. It was written by a gal named Candace Millard, and it is about uh, James Garfield, who was president of the United States for a very brief period of time. And uh, does anybody know what he's notable for? That's right. He was assassinated. Uh, President Garfield was uh, assassinated by a fellow who uh, was mentally ill, who believed that he was helping the president uh, get elected, that he had interacted with the president, you know, about uh, about a cabinet position and a number of other things that they had had a number of of meals together and stuff like that. I mean, he was kind of delusional. And this fellow uh, was upset that he was not given these things that he expected or felt he deserved. And uh, he walked up to the president in a train station and shot him. Uh, Garfield was, uh, was shot in the chest. Um, his personal doctor or a, uh, a physician stepped in and they, they brought the, the president to the White House. And that was where a fella named Willis or Willard Bliss entered the story. Now, Willard Bliss was a physician, but he had been sort of cast out because of, and I'm not making this up, and I only learned it this morning, it was not in the book, uh, he advocated for the use of homeopathy. And, like, the medical establishment kicked him out. Of Like, he was, he was no longer a part of the medical establishment. He was considered discredited. And um, somebody else who, you know, the doctor who was there attending to the president uh, called Dr. Bliss in to consult because he was a Civil War doctor, like a like a field doctor for the Union Army. And he comes in and he examines the president by like inserting his finger into the wound. He had not washed his hands. 
uh, and searching around to see if he could figure out where the bullet was. And um, he then began to take over the medical service for the president. Like he literally came in and took charge. And he uh, like ran the show for the president's medical treatment. Now, as it turns out, Garfield's injury wasn't that bad. It was not. It was completely survivable. But Dr. Bliss was convinced that the bullet was in a certain place and it had to be removed. Um, Garfield's personal physician came. Bliss yelled at him and had him thrown out. Other physicians pushed him to change his course of treatment. He yelled at them and pushed them out. And ultimately, he kept the bullet wound open and he probed it looking for the bullet, thinking if we just get the bullet out of there, then he'll be fine. But what killed Garfield was not the bullet. It was infection. Because day after day after day after day, Mr. Bliss probed looking for a bullet. Um, and, and he was unwilling to share. He had taken authority. And then after the president passed away, all of a sudden somebody, like he gave the bill for almost a million dollars to the government. And all of these people stopped and said, well, wait a minute. Who are you? And why were you in charge? And suddenly they realized that this guy had no official position and wasn't even really a doctor anymore because he'd been kicked out. And he had stepped in and treated the president to death. Um, he had no authority in the position that he was in, but he had taken it, right? It's the most extreme, ridiculous example I could think of of taking authority where you don't have it. Um, are you all following me? Like he had no place to say these things, but everybody believed him. Um, and as we dive into our text today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Sorry, I got to open this. Uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness and we're going to talk about authority because, um, we're in the gospel of Mark. This is our last time dealing with this particular text. I know I've beaten it to death through and through. Um, but we've looked at like, this is the story of the men who brought the paralyzed man to Christ. They lowered him through the ceiling. Jesus announced I, you know, saw their faith and said, your sins are forgiven. And then everybody gets mad. And that's where we're going to pick up. Okay. Um, real quick, faith uh, is depicted in Mark as action and belief combined, right? Or belief that is so profound that it urges you into new life and new action. We talked about it like a new operating system on your computer. Like in you, it changes you. It makes you different. It makes you operate different. It makes you a different person. Um, and the crowds are generally there as a prop, and they never respond in faith. Now, lastly, authority has already come up once. When Jesus, in the previous chapter, casts out demons and teaches, they're like, man, this guy's got authority, right? And authority is a powerful thing. Dr. Bliss used authority, because he sounded authoritative, to, you know, kill the president, basically. Uh, Jesus used authority to cast out demons on command. And he taught in ways that were not referring to everybody else. He was speaking of his own authority. And so as we dive in today, we're going to talk about Jesus' authority in this situation. So, Mark 2, 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Again, not what they were looking for. Everybody with me? And here's why it's a big deal. In the Jewish faith, ah, forgiveness was very central 
to a huge chunk of their belief, like all of the sacrificial system and all this was about obedience and forgiveness and becoming right before God and living right before God. And like forgiveness is this huge thing for the Jewish people, like everything in the temple, sacrifices, all of this stuff was worship and forgiveness and a couple other things, but forgiveness was in the middle of it. Um, Only God had the authority to forgive sins. You all with me? Like, only God. Nobody else could. And actually, even if, like when David killed uh, Uriah the Hittite, like so he could steal Bathsheba, or after he had stolen Bathsheba, um, he said, against God and God alone have I sinned. Which is weird. But like by violating the command, he had sinned against God. Right. And he said, like, only God can forgive me. Uh, and, and so we, we see this thing where, like, only God is in this position to forgive. Only God, is, like other people might be offended by our sins. But like God is ultimately the one that has authority and like rule in order for it to matter. And then finally, even then, like God's forgiveness, um, God, not good. That's my typo, had placed specific rules for forgiveness as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, um, one of those things is, this is Leviticus 17, maybe, there it goes, for life is in the flesh, or for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by this life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you will eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood." Um, real quick, what he's saying is the blood is significant and only by blood can sin be forgiven, right? Like, like only when punishment is sent out and blood is shed in response to the wicked thing that happened, only then can forgiveness happen. And you see this in the sacrificial system where if you sinned, you would sacrifice, but then also they had another sacrifice they did. Uh, it's called, in modern world, it's called Yom Kippur, Right? It means uh, God's covering, I think. Is that right, John? Something like that. Uh, It's usually in the fall. It just went by. Um, But even then, like, so these forgivenesses you would do, these sacrifices you would do for your sin where, like, the punishment, the death came onto this animal. Instead, there was a bigger one that happened every year that was sort of the definitive sacrifice for forgiveness. We're going to talk about that a little later, okay? Everybody with me? So huge sacrificial system, huge um, uh, blood being associated with it. Finally, last thing, this is in Hebrews. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And actually, Hebrews in this chapter and the surrounding chapters is talking about that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement is what we call it. The Day of Atonement sacrifice. And in the Day of Atonement, you had to do a whole bunch of these sacrifices. And the very first one, because the priest was a s- sinful, just like everyone else, he would sacrifice a bull, he would take the blood, he would go into the temple or the tabernacle, and he would throw blood everywhere to like sanctify the space and himself for the service of asking for forgiveness. Like everything is washed in blood in the Old Testament. That is a lot, isn't it? It's kind of brutal. It's kind of weird to us because we don't think that way. I mean, we generally, most of us have killed animals, I assume, and cut them up. I've watched, uh, you know, I've watched animals being bled and all that. I mean, this is a thing people do. But like in our world, the idea that blood would be required for sin, that's a lot. But like part of what goes with that is that 
like the degree to which God is offended by our sin is often underplayed by us. We often lose track of that. God is like, in fact, he announced to Adam and Eve, you know, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And he showed grace in that they did not die immediately, right? We all sin and only in, like, only in pain for that sin, only in being punished for the sins we commit, like, is that a thing? Like, is it forgiven or is it paid off or atonement is made? Um, really quick to explain it. Well, I don't want to get into that. It's another sidetrack. We'll talk a little more about that in the deep dive. But here is, this is the way the ancient Jewish religion worked. And we'll figure out a little more about that later. Um, so we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement real quick, and then we will hit this text and we'll understand. So Jesus says, you are forgiven. And again, no one except God could offer forgiveness. And the only time in the Jewish religion that anyone was able to say to the people, you are forgiven, right, is in the Day of Atonement, when they would do this sacrifice once a year. And it took place like it's prescribed in the law of Moses. So he gives them rules. He says, this is how you know you're sinning or not sinning. And we often look at those and think, well, wait a minute. Those seem arbitrary. Why can't I do A, B, and C? Well, God, through the law, tells us what it is to have a relationship with him. Um, A similar thing happens in marriage, right? Most of those of you who are married, you made an agreement, right? I will show up at home every night, right? Or call if I'm not gonna. I will not hit you. I will not date other people, right? For better, for worse, in sickness and health, obey, all that other stuff, right? Uh, Two or three people know the obey joke. So the law is there to show us what it is to be in right relationship with God. And the law also prescribes this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It took place annually, and everybody would fast for 25 hours before they did the sacrifice. Why 25 hours, you might ask? Because the text only says 24 hours, but they added an extra hour just in case because they wanted to be really sure they did it right. Because if you accidentally messed it up, they would say, well, we did the sacrifice wrong, so now we're not forgiven. And so every year you would do this, and the priest would take, he'd like, like purify the, 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 the inner tent here, right? I'll show you. Uh, the big tent there, that, this is the tabernacle. It's the temple before there was a temple. And in this inner tent is where he would purify it with blood. And then he would take two goats and he would sacrifice one. And the other one, he would take it into the temple, having purified everything. And he put his hands on the head of the goat and he would announce every sin that he and the people had committed. And then they would take the goat to Azara, which means like goat go away. I'm not making that up. That is basically what it means. Goat go away. Uh, they'd send it off into the wilderness, cast it out of the city or out of the, the, the assembly, and it would take their sins away. And so this like series of sacrifices, it was designed purely to announce forgiveness every year. And it was the only time the priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And he would take blood to the Ark of the Covenant, right? You all saw Indiana Jones? Uh, and he would pour that blood on the mercy seat. And that was for the atonement, for the forgiveness of sin. And that was how sins were forgiven, like, or understood to be forgiven, is you had to do, here's another inside of the thing. Ah. See the Holy of Holies on the backside. I'm going to do a deep dive with Abby later this week and explain it a little better. Uh, this is not the one from Indiana Jones. I actually had one from the movie, and I thought that would be too distracting. 
but the, they would pour it on the top, and inside was the broken Ten Commandments. And like, so I have broken the Ten Commandments is the symbol. They are in the ark. This is the throne of God, like on earth is the symbol. And you would take this blood and pour it out on the throne of God as a show that my sins have been atoned for. There has been the shedding of blood. I am forgiven, right? Everybody with me? Everybody's thinking, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Um, so naturally, follow me here. So the only time anyone's allowed to announce forgiveness is at the Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the Jewish year. And only then, like, it's not even the priest saying, I forgive your sins. He's saying, your sins are forgiven because of the sacrifice, because of the shedding of blood. Now, Jesus' announcement would have ticked everybody off. Why? Because he's got no right. Get what I'm saying? He, they looked at him and they assumed he's this doctor who's walked in to this sick man who's been lowered through the ceiling. And instead of healing him or doing whatever, he announces your sins are forgiven. And they're like, wait a minute, you don't have the authority to do that. What's going on here? Everybody with me? Like, and Christ um, did this. He did this. They would have, like, he did this to show his authority ultimately. But they're looking at him and they're mad. And now some of the scribes were sitting there. The scribes would have been like um, people who are professional writers, but in the process of becoming a scribe, you would become an expert in, like, the law and everything else because you have to, like, copy it over and over again, become memorized and everything else. Um, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Now, this gospel is Peter's account. Peter's in the room. He's watching this happen. It was written super Jewish. And Jewish readers would have been like, he forgave sins. And they know the only way sin is forgiven by the shedding of blood. And even then, it's the day of atonement, right? Like, that's it. That's all you got. And they would have maybe cocked an eyebrow. Everybody in the room would have been like, what? How can this be possible? But the guys who were really educated were the ones who got maddest. Um, And so the big idea is here. Jesus' announcement of of forgiveness was offensive to those who knew the law thoroughly. And it kind of should have been. Get what I'm saying? Like he made a grandiose claim. Um, And actually, technically, I think it falls under blasphemy. Uh, because he's t- claiming God's authority for himself. Um, however, Jesus' words are only blasphemy if they are not true, right? They're blasphemy if they are Dr. Bliss stepping in and saying, everything is okay, I'm going to take care of you, and showing you bliss all the way up until you're spiritually dead and heading into the grave. And there are plenty of preachers and plenty of churches and plenty of like uh, snake oil salesmen that will throw that out there and say, hey, God, you know, it's okay, God doesn't care, or do this or do that, or if you work hard enough, you'll get into heaven. Not at all. Everybody with me? It's only if it's not true. However, because Christ is the Son of God, he can forgive sins. And how does that even work? Well, we're going to look at that real quick. I'm going the long way around, but we're going to do a lot of Jewish stuff, and I think the Jewish stuff is awfully cool. Okay? So you're stuck. So, the old system of sacrifice was never meant to be permanent, right? Never meant to be permanent. It was foreshadowing, right? If you drive across this country long enough, you will find a sign or dozens of signs that say X number of miles to 
John said it, wall drug. You can go to Florida, and there are signs 2,000 miles to wall drug. You go to Mexico, there are signs that say this far to wall drug. And you know what? Wall drug, not that impressive. But it is a lot more impressive than the sign, right? In a way, the sacrificial system is the wall drug sign. It is pointing forward and saying, guys, there's more happening. There is more going on. It is always foreshadowing. And like what the book of Hebrews tells us, i got to hold it up. I can't, couldn't find my glasses. I lost them this morning. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, meaning it's foreshadow, it's the sign, not the real thing, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But... In these, same, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it, is possi- for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what the author is telling us is, number one, these sacrifices, they're not actually forgiving your sins, right? It's a symbol that they're playing out over and over and over again, year after year, to remind them that as I disobey God, as I rebel against God, as I do these wicked acts, I'm bringing death on myself. Like, I'm dying before the Lord. Like, I am creating spiritual, like, emptiness and brokenness in myself. And so this reminder, year after year, bloodshed, spread everywhere. You fast. You feel bad for your sins. You watch the goat carrying the sins out of the assembly. And you know, like, all right, well, I'm forgiven for now, but we'll have to do it again next year. And it's year after year after year after year after year. And it never, ever accomplishes anything except... To point forward to the real thing. One of the things we talked about with faith in a previous week was that these guys believed in the promise, like Abraham believed in the promise, and believing in this promise is credited to you as righteousness. Meaning when Abraham believed God, he was forgiven because Christ died for his sins. When the man was lowered, he was forgiven because he believed the Messiah, he believed God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He couldn't do anything. He was, you know... He was not able to. He was paralyzed. In fact, somebody, I read a commentary arguing as to whether or not the guy chose to be there if they just dragged him there. You know, no, I don't want to leave. Leave me alone. You know, nope, try to stop us. You're paralyzed. You know, and they dump him in through the roof. Like, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. It is faith in Christ that brings forgiveness. And they were seeing a shadow. They were seeing a low-end, crummy version of it. They were seeing the wall drug sign. Until Christ showed up and Christ has the authority because he's the son of God, but also because of the other stuff Hebrews tells us. Jesus came to offer the final sacrifice. He was the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant. And if you read Hebrews, we're not going to do the whole book. I would love to. It is so cool. But everything in the old sacrificial system is a symbol of something that happened with Jesus. Like the goat, they put the hand on the goat and confess their sins and send it out of the city. Like Hebrews tells us that Jesus, like they, these guys have literally laid hands on him and he was tried by the chief priest illegally, right? Illegally, he's brought to the chief priest's house. If you go to court and it's at a guy's house, don't stay, it is not legitimate. Um, but like the chief priest smacks him. And accuses him falsely over and over again. And ultimately what he's accusing him of is, 
what they're guilty of. And then he lays hands on him. He punches him. He hits him. And they all gather around and punch and hit him, having laid hands on him. And then the next day he's sent out of the city with their sins to die in the wilderness. And that was a symbol of what was coming. All that time it was pointing forward to this trial. When Christ is sacrificed, it is that sacrifice that is like the other goat, that they pour the blood on the mercy seat. And that represents this thing that happens in heaven when Christ is sacrificed. And we'll look at this real quick. So this is uh, Hebrews 9. Oh, my gosh. All right. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, or excuse me, goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For it is the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer um, sanctify, or excuse me, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That was a lot. I'm going to break it down real quick. So, what we find out is the tent, that tabernacle I showed you. That is a recreation of something that exists in heaven. And the mercy seat and that little space that's divided by a curtain that no one would go into except once a year. That is essentially the throne room of God. And so they were recreating this priest coming in and pouring out the blood of the sacrifice that took punishment for their sins and all this other stuff. Like over and over again. And in reality, Christ would come to the holy place like God's throne room, and he would pour out his blood on our behalf. And so those of us who are broken, those of us who are rebellious or sinful, those of us who look and say, God will never love me because of my sin, Christ's blood is that poured out thing that purifies us. And so he's able to look at the paralyzed man and say, your sins are forgiven. He's able to look at the thief who's dying next to him on the cross, and he's able to say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He has authority, not just because he's the son of God, but also because he's the high priest who offers the sacrifice and he's a sacrifice himself. All of this stuff was always pointing forward to Christ coming. And so the Jews are there and they're like, nope, can't happen because we need, you know, it's the high priest that does this and that's not how it works and you can't do that and you can't do this. Thus, it was necessary for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites um, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hand, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it, or excuse me, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with the sin to, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. 
was what I had just explained, right? Like Christ went into God's presence. He poured out his blood. We were covered. We were forgiven. And the whole sacrificial system is pointing toward him. And if we understand this, if we understand how these things work, we can see sort of behind the curtain, so to speak, which is funny because there's a big curtain that surrounded the Holy of Holies, and you had to open the curtain to go in, and you would only go in once a year, and only after like doing a dozen purification rituals and all kinds of other stuff. And instead, right, Instead, we see that that stuff is always about Christ. And the curtain was there to remind us we can't approach God ourselves because of our sin. The best we can do is come into the, like, yard. And even then, it's a dangerous proposition. So we'll jump back to Mark. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves... Um, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. And then, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, real quick, he is demonstrating his authority in this healing, Right? I can do all kinds of things with my voice. I am loud. I can do this without a microphone. I am loud. I can speak in my dad voice superpower, and kids will clean their rooms sometimes. (laughs) I am, you know, I'm able to talk to people about their problems. I'm able to do this. I'm able to do that. I am not able to tell somebody who's paralyzed, get up and walk. But Christ had so much authority that he's able to say directly to someone, do this, and they do it. It's the same authority we see in Genesis when the statement is made, let there be light. If you are so powerful that you can speak into nothing and make something be or exist, that is incredible, right? And that is the authority Christ is demonstrating here. He's the authority he demonstrates over this Man, like when he forgives his sins because he is the priest, he is the sacrifice, and he is God himself. He has the authority to speak over this man and heal him. Um, He would forgive or he would accomplish it. It was always in the books that he would. Um, And so it's true then as well. God's promise applies. Um, If I say, let there be light, there isn't more light. Christ can. If Christ says, let you be forgiven, then you're forgiven. Well, surely I got to do a lot of work to get that. Absolutely not. This man did nothing. He laid there. Right? For us, all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is have faith. And that faith is like an operating system that downloads into us. Even if our Wi-Fi connection is really slow and it takes forever, it still happens. And it changes us into new people. And it makes us saved. It washes our sins away. Christ carries them out of the village or out of the assembly and is sacrificed for them takes punishment for them, and God looked at him and saw my sin and looks at me and sees his righteousness. And I am covered, like the Day of Atonement, right? God's covering is what Yom Kippur means. And I am covered by Christ. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So what do we do with this? First off, Christ has offered 
this final sacrifice for our sins. And so if we are in him, if we are following Jesus, we are cleansed. Now, here's the tricky part. Sometimes in our heads, we don't believe that. Anybody ever get into that place where you're like, I know I'm forgiven, but I'm probably not forgiven. I know I'm forgiven, but I know it's not enough. I know I'm forgiven, but I still hate me. But in reality, that is believing something you have no authority to believe. Because if Christ has died for you, if you are made new in Christ, if you are a new creation and the old has gone away and the new is here, then that is the truth about you. You can say, I, I've repented of these sins. I continue to be sorry I did that. I'm dealing with the consequences of it. But I am made new. I am loved enough that Christ would die for me. I am like bought with a price and I belong to him now. And so we, like, this is something we have to remind ourselves of every day. You know why? Because we forget, right? Because this is the operating system that keeps us working, and we've got to keep it running against the old operating system that says, be ashamed of yourself, or do whatever feels good, God doesn't care, or whatever, hate your neighbor, gossip, it's fun, all that other stuff. So we must live this truth out in our faith. Living as though this is true is hard, right? I remember the first year I was married, the hardest part was living as though I was suddenly married, right? I had no idea how much extra stuff came with that. It was not in the brochure. I had to wash dishes. Can you believe that? I didn't agree to that in the, you know, in the vows. It was not in my vows. I make people say it in their vows now usually, um, but, like, I had to wash dishes. It was a part of the equation. I had to remember to call my wife when I was going to be late. What the heck? I wouldn't have agreed to that. I'm terrible at it. I live as though I'm married now, because I am. And I live as though I'm a new creation in Christ. And I am in Christ because I am. And so I have to back up every day and look at myself and say, is it true? How am I living? Does Christ, and if I doubt it, if I look at myself and say, nope, God still hates me, I have to back up and say, no, Christ has this authority over my sin, over my past, over my eternity, over my very being that he can say, you are now spiritually alive again, and I'm going to remake you so you look like me. And very slowly as I live my life, that reality comes about. But he said it's true, so I have to live as though it's true. And that's hard. So this new operating system has to kick in. Finally, Christ's death and resurrection is the defining point of our lives and of all of history. Like, and that's hard to do. You know why? Because getting married or having kids or um, moving to Montana or whatever can easily become defining moments. Horrible things that have happened in my life. Anybody got a few of those? You know, the big, you're like 10. <laughs> these like, I don't mean to make fun of you. I'm sorry, that was wrong. I, but like we have these horrible things that happen to us and we relive them and go back to them and they can easily become defining aspects of who we are. Or our low self-esteem can become our defining aspect. But in truth, Christ's death for you his resurrection that demonstrates that we have died and through our baptism, like we demonstrate like symbolically that we're resurrected and we take communion and like remember that Christ is filling me up and I am becoming brand new constantly. This is the defining point of our lives and we have to live as though it's true. It's hard. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes focus. But if he has that kind of authority, then it's worth doing. My boss, I don't have a boss, 
The last time I had a job with a boss, I know my wife is my boss actually, but the last time I had a boss in employment, like I, he could fire me, right? Um, and he used to joke. He would say, Eric, I don't worry about what you're doing because all I can do is fire you. God is the one who's going to judge you. And so you're our chaplain. If you blow off your work and you don't care, God's going to do worse to you than I am. All I'm going to do is write you up and maybe make you unemployed. God is going to really deal with you. And that was a great performance review. Um, But if it's true, then I have to take that seriously. I have to take it seriously all the time. Children, you talk about your parents. Like I know Titus is... We have this this stuff going back and forth about do this, do don't do that versus like I want to do and I'm not going to do. And my authority is what it is, but God's authority is ultimate. And I'm just standing as a placeholder right now. My challenge for you this week is to look at your heart and look at your life and ask, am I living as though Christ's authority is over me? Am I living as though these things are true in my daily life, in my walk, in my thinking, in my decisions, in my go back and pour gas on the fire of how ticked off I am at that guy because he did this thing or said this thing? Am I allowing Christ's like in, invasion of my life to define me? Or am I allowing a, a death or some abuse or some mistreatment or some victory I won or whatever to define me? And what do you have to do to change that? I'm going to tell you again, this has been months of sermon series, but like That's a team sport. It's not something you do on your own. It's something you do as the church. And so I'd like to challenge you in that. I'm going to close in prayer. And we will uh, finish up our very last time doing this paralytic uh, text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us. Um, Pray that you would give us your grace this morning. Help us to look to you. Help us to see you uh, in our lives. Help us to look inward and, and choose the different operating system. Help us to constantly... Download it through the reading of the word, through fellowship, through prayer, through, through repentance and confession and, and service and humility. Help us to constantly become more and more like you so that we can operate with a new operating system, so that we can operate as new people. Help us to look more and more like you every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good Sunday, folks.